The preaching of God's Word is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, and there from verse 9 through verse 14. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Here we have the introduction of Christ's parable, which the reason for which he's telling this parable, and then the parable itself by which these two are contrasted, the Pharisee and the publican, this one who uh, is in some sense the example of outward righteousness, and this other who is the example of sin. So here then the word of God, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, we read, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood with himself, God, I think that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Thus the word of God. Well, it takes no little effort, uh, no large effort, to discern that there are many problems which currently plague the world. There are social and relational, there are uh, religious and ceremonial issues, there are physical and all manner of troubles that fall upon the face of the world. And it is right that in our various callings we give attention to them, that by the Lord's blessing there may be some alleviation of these troubles in the Lord's mercy. But the Lord is frequent in calling our attention to the one great problem that faces every single individual and faces each individual to the same extent. So you can think of it this way, though we may have some responsibility to concern ourselves with the problems that are faced by Asia and Africa and these continents far from us, of course we have more responsibility toward those problems in our own neighborhoods as the Lord has placed us in His sovereignty in these places here. And yet there, are, there is a problem that every single individual of whatever uh, nation and time and culture that they are faces him and her. And it's that which Christ presents to us in this passage. It is the greatest concern for each soul of how can I, who stand guilty and condemned by God, ever have hope of standing accepted with God? Now, in the text before us, there are two ways that are shown. There are other ways, perhaps, and nuances to this, but you'll notice that Christ is addressing this by speaking this parable. This uh, passage presents to us a teaching of Christ that casts something alongside the main truth. 
by which we can look at and see, as it were, in a reflection, uh, the truth he's teaching. And what is it he's speaking about? Well, he's speaking, notice, to certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And brethren, wherever you find the one, you'll find the other. When one trusts in himself, there will be this relative comparison to others and this marking of everyone else's problems and this feeling of superiority that starts to creep in to one's life. And where you find this critical spirit, you'll find one who's trusting in themselves. Well, Christ is speaking this to them in particular. You'll notice the parable presents two men with two different postures and thus two different outcomes. And of course, in Christ's day, this would have been quite scandalous to have heard what he says because he presents the Pharisee, which at Christ's, in Christ's day was the, uh, uh, the, the, the example of purity. You know, so you, you hear his prayer of some of the things, and elsewhere you see throughout the Scriptures other things that characterize this group. It's not that every Pharisee was self-righteous, but they had a tendency to that end. And here you'll notice that contrasted with this Pharisee whom society in Jesus' day would have looked at and said, they're the good ones, they're the pure ones, is presented this publican, a despised an abusive collector of taxes. Now, it's not that taxes are in and of themselves wrong or that one fulfilling that office was in and of itself wrong, but they had abused that office. And moreover, many times were Jews who had capitulated to join with the Gentile government and to side with them over and against the Jews. So there's this inbuilt Uh, reprehensible posture toward the publican. It would be difficult for us to uh, enter into the the force of what Christ is presenting, but you could think, for instance, of something like a pastor versus a prostitute. If Christ were to present those in our day, you would be struck right away with the contrast. And that's what Christ is getting at here. Here's the Pharisee. Everyone would have been inclined to think well of the Pharisee. Here's the uh, uh, publican. Everyone would have been inclined to despise the publican. They probably would have had personal experience with publicans who had been heavy-handed and careless and unloving toward them. And so inbuilt would have been this sense of despising the one And inbuilt would have been this posture of reverencing the other. And then you'll notice what he says of these two men. They're both relatively at the same place. They're in the temple to pray. But you'll notice the Pharisee seems to be nearer, and the publican, as is said in verse 13, standing afar. So the posture of the Pharisee is one that he draws near to the means of grace. And the publican is that though he's making use of the means, he's far off, perhaps giving some sense of their posture. Notice the two patterns of their prayers. The Pharisee, it's interesting how this is worded, both in the English and in the Greek. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. It's almost as if his audience is himself, though he says, I think the God, he actually has this 
which he's praying with and through and to himself. And what is the substance of his prayer? Well, I thank you for what? That I'm not as other men are. And instantly, there is this understanding of his own thought. I stand better than others. I, then, notice, who's the subject in all of his petitions? Notice this. He says, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I am. He says, I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. His fixation is upon himself, that though with his lips he's saying, thank you, God, with his heart and with the substance of his petitions, he's focused and consumed with himself. Now notice then the other. The publican comes, and he's standing afar off, and he would not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven. He's cast down in his visage, his face, his posture, all displays this, that as his heart is, so is his body. And it says that he smote upon his breast. I wonder when the last time was that you struck your chest such out of agony. It's no display of strength. It's rather this overwhelming sense of uncontrollable angst and shame. Notice with himself. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The word merciful in the Greek has to do with propitiation. God, be propitious to me. What does that word mean? Well, it has to do with, as we read in Romans chapter 3, uh, Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is the sacrifice which removes both the guilt of our sin and the wrath of God against us for our sin. So what is this publican praying? God, I deserve your wrath. I stand guilty before you. My prayer is that you would remove my guilt, pardon my guilt, atone for my guilt, and thus remove your wrath. Notice in it, he confesses himself to be a sinner. In fact, in the Greek, it's stronger. It's to me, the sinner. It's as if he's consumed. It's interesting, isn't it? With himself, but not in the proud way of the Pharisee, but in the broken way of a convinced and convicted sinner. You see, both are consumed with themselves. The Pharisee is consumed with himself as if he has attained by his works to a right standing with God. The other is consumed with himself in how it is that by his sin he is disqualified from any standing with God. And thus, he makes his petition to God for the Lord's free pardon and acceptance. And here's where the crowd gathered would have been astounded. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, a word meaning declared righteous, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. And then notice Christ gives as a principle. So he's not just giving some sort of helpful teaching. He's laying this down as a principle for all time, for all generations. Everyone that exalted himself shall be abased. 
and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So it interprets for us the parable. What's the Pharisee doing? He's exalting himself before God. And Christ says, the one who does that will be broken and cast down before God. What's the publican doing? He's humbling himself before God. And what shall come of all who do the same? They shall be exalted by God. Well, let us give some attention to these two ways of righteousness before God by looking at two things. Firstly, these two approaches which are identified, to consider them a bit more fully. And secondly, the two outcomes which are secured, these two approaches and these two outcomes. What are the two approaches? They're as noted, represented by the Pharisee, which Christ says is the exalting of oneself, and the other which is represented by the publican, which as Christ says, is one humbling himself. Well, notice then the first of these approaches, this uh, exalting of oneself. And what is true of this one who is doing so? Well, notice what's true of him is he was rather a moral man. Christ doesn't in the parable say, nope, he is an extortioner and unjust and an adulterer and so on. And there's no one in this parable who says, time out, you're off because I saw you do this, then the other thing. There's some truth to what he's saying that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. And so his life, in other words, outwardly speaking, is largely free of any scandalous sin. This is what, of course, is mistaken by him, as we'll see, as evidence that he has attained to the needed righteousness. Now let's be clear, the scripture is in nowhere and not here saying that we ought not to strive after holiness, But rather, in context, what's being done is this man is making his own work as the cause of his standing before God, which we'll see is wrong. So he's a moral man. And yet you'll notice his morality is only relative to other men. You see that in the text? He says, I thank thee that I am not as other men. So in other words his standing of assessment, his own uh, assessment of his morality, is with reference merely to other men. This is actually helpful for us to see something. He's not standing himself and assessing himself strictly against the law of God, though there's some semblance of that, right? Because we know, of course, that uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. We know that we're to speak the truth, And we know that we're to be full of mercy and we're to be righteous and so on. We know all of those things. But what the man is doing is not comparing himself and examining himself by the law of God. He's examining himself and comparing himself against other men. Now we'll see that this stands with the next step. He says, in essence, not only am I a moral man, but I am a religious man. Notice this statement, verse 12, I fast twice in the week. Now, we don't know the totality of what is included in that, but we can 
Note several things. Fasting is not for the Pharisee, merely a medical issue. Many of us will have seasons in our lives where, medically speaking, we have to fast in preparation for a procedure of some sort, testing of some sort, or perhaps for dietary purposes, we have a momentary fast of some sort. This isn't what the Pharisee's talking about. He didn't care about so-called intermittent fasting. He didn't care about this diet or the other diet or something else. He's speaking in the context of religious exercise. And so fasting, biblically speaking, is not only the abstaining of food and drink for a season, but doing so in order to engage in spiritual exercises. So where there is a religious fast, whether personal and private or public and congregational, there's the abstaining of certain foods and drinks for the purpose of more focused attention to the means of grace. And he says, I do that twice in the week. Now think of that for a moment. We're not talking about dietary concerns and other things, medical procedures. How frequently does the average Christian today fast? It would be hard to think of, in our own nation anyway, if we can judge by the evidence of the same, that Christians fast in general at all. It's hard for us to consider you know, that being a mark of Christian piety. And yet, as Christ says, you know, the days are when the bridegroom is with the bride that my people will not fast. But when I depart, he says, they will fast. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he instructs his people unto private fasting. When he says, when ye fast, you know, don't be like those who display it in front of others, but privately exercise yourself before the Lord. Now, with that before us, just of our own culture, how astounding is it to find this man fasting twice in the week? He's religiously devoted. In fact, the very name of Pharisee has this notion of one set apart, of one devoted unto the Lord. He gives tithes of all that I possess. And so when we think of tithing, we think of uh, this idea of, well, I get paid, let's say, $1,000. I'm going to give 10% of that. That's what we think of with reference to tithing. But in the scriptures of the Old Testament, it was not only inclusive of monetary provision, but inclusive of harvests received and gifts received. That a tenth of all that he received, he was ever devoting it unto the Lord. Now, the point is, the man is outwardly religious and in many ways superior to the rest of men. But this is, of course, again, the fault of the man instead of the strength of the man. The man's fault is that in comparing himself against others in religious things, he appears better and then in his mind thinks, I therefore am that one who is at peace with God. This, of course, colors the whole of his prayer in that he's shown to be a self-confident man. He's a man who is exalting himself, building himself up before God. It's as if he stands before the bar of justice, of divine justice, and he's ushering in all of his works before the Lord and saying, Oh God, I thank you that I have this cause of peace before you because I'm not like that one there and these men here. I stand 
head and shoulders above all others in religion, in morality. And oh, let me look around and see there's one in the crowd. See that publican? I thank you that I'm not like he is. What's interesting is, do you see at verse 9, it says that Christ spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, which we see in this Pharisee, that they were righteous and despised others. And you can see it throughout the prayer. He's always comparing himself against others. I thank you that I'm not like this one and that one and these or that person there. I thank you that religiously I'm more devoted than others. I thank you, O God, for what I am doing. And in doing so, he's necessarily critical and despising of others. Well, here is one approach. We'll see the fruit of it, as, of course, we've already read. But notice then the second approach, which is this humbling of oneself. For though the scene changes, rather the focus in the scene changes now to the publican, this despised collector of taxes. And what do we find in this man? Well, we don't find him saying things like, I thank you that I'm not like the other publicans. I thank you that in my calling, I'm faithful in the handling of money. He doesn't do any of that. Rather, he is a convicted man. You see the language that he expresses of himself at the end of his petition in verse 13. He says, to me, a sinner. How would he summarize himself? A sinner. I stand off the mark of your law. The Pharisee is saying, your law is here, and I'm hitting it in comparison with others. And yet now this man is not comparing him with others. He says, your law holds forth the standard, and I've missed the mark. The whole of my being is one grand missing of the standard which you have established. It may be that I'm closer to the mark than others, but what does that matter? Because my righteousness is not about am I better than others or worse than others. It's do I stand up and match the standard which you have appointed by your law. And he says, no. When I get through my assessment of myself, here's what I see. I stand wayward. The word sin, and it's various uh, verbs and nouns and adjectives and so on here as we have it describing the man a sinner, the sinner, is in its idea this waywardness, this missing of the mark, this going off of the path. And he says, that's my identity. That's what I am. Notice he's convicted by it. He's not rejoicing in it. We could say further that in his conviction, he is humbled by it. In our world today, there is this strange way that some people have understood the very surface level of such a teaching. And so they go about saying, well, we're all sinners, and yet it's as if they're happy that they're saying it. You know, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners. What's the deal? We all sin, it doesn't matter. You know, everyone's guilty. You can even hear this from pulpits and churches, and people go to church, they hear this message, and then they become critical. It's an estranged, uh, it's a strange irony of sorts. Because now what they become is the Pharisee 
by marking their relative conviction of sin against others who don't have the same mark. But see, what happens where there is true conviction is they stand slain before God. They're humbled before Him. They are broken before Him. They don't start saying, I thank you, O God, that I have more conviction than the others do. I thank you, O God, that I have more knowledge of my sin than others do. They don't repeat the error of the Pharisee with different words and petitions. Rather, the man is broken before God. And you see this in his very fabric of being. So it says of this man, he would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. When a man is convicted of his sin and humbled by his sin, there is not the slightest display of pride and arrogance. There's not this bringing in of critical spirit toward others. Well, I stand more convicted than these people do. He stands rather, as it were, an audience before God alone, and he pushes out all the others, however relatively better, however relatively worse, because he sees his problem has nothing to do with Joe and Sally and Bill down the road. It has nothing to do with this religion and that religion that's wrong. It has everything to do with the fact that he, I, stand guilty before the God. That's my problem. My problem is that I have violated your law and I have no hope in my works. He's humbled and abased. And in fact, this is what Paul says is the very purpose of the law of God. Did you hear it in Romans chapter 3? After giving this long quotation of various descriptions of men and their sin, He says, here's the purpose of the law, verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world, Jew and Gentile, become guilty before whom? Before God. You can see something as you compare and contrast these two. The Pharisee who's supposed to be devoted to God is actually devoted to himself in comparison to others. He's proud because he's misjudged the standard by which he's to judge his righteousness. There's no argument against his relative righteousness. Doubtlessly, he was more outwardly righteous than the publican. Doubtlessly, he was more righteous than the adulterer and extortioner in his outward behaviors. His mouth perhaps was free of outward profanity. Perhaps he was as the rich young ruler who came to Christ and said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Christ says to him, You know the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery, honor thy father and mother, and so on. And the man says, I've kept all of these from my youth. And may that give us some small insight with massive import. One of the biggest temptations facing people raised in the church is their relative righteousness compared to the rest of the world. And we should expect as much. We should expect children who are born in the church and have clearer understanding of God's requirements will be relatively better than the rest of the world. 
because they have better understanding. They're more clearly aware of the judgments that come for violation. And it's no wonder that this rich young ruler, himself was a Jew and was raised with the synagogue teaching and preaching the truth of God's Word, or this Pharisee who himself would have been a Jew and was a teacher of the law of God, it's no wonder that their lives would have been better off than others. But here's the problem. They judged their standing with God by their relative betterment compared to others. Whereas the relative righteousness that's superior to others does nothing to address the fact that we have failed to keep God's law perfectly. So you can go back and look at the Pharisee's prayer. He cannot say that I'm not as other men are, sinners. He talks about outward actions. And so it's interesting, of course, Christ will speak of this idea, the spirituality of the law and the Sermon on the Mount. I say to you, if a man looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, he's guilty of adultery already. I tell you, if a man says, thou fool, he is guilty of the fiery hell, right? The Pharisee can't stand and say, I've never been guilty of lust. I've never been guilty of any expression of sinful anger. He can say, I stand in a better position than others, relatively. But his focus was off. He misjudged the standard. Think of it this way, children. There are 12 inches in a foot. If you had to measure 6 feet and you had 12-inch ruler, you could measure that, 6 of them. But what if your ruler was off by 3 inches? It's still on the ruler, says 12 inches, but it actually only measured 9. You say, well, this is 12 inches, I'm going to measure it out. And you say, well, I've measured out six of these. But you haven't actually measured out six feet because your measurement was off. What happens in the self-righteous is their measurement is off. They're measuring by a lesser standard. They're measuring not by the full demand of God's law. They're measuring rather by the shorter standard of And when we do that, we will always find others that we are superior to in outward, moral, and religious things. But return to look at this one who humbles himself. There's not a mention of others. There is a mention of himself and of God. Here's what I am. I'm a sinner. You are God. You're just and righteous. And notice what this conviction and humbling brings about. It brings about the expression of dependence upon God's grace. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This word merciful is not the generic term that's often translated mercy. Be compassionate. It would include that, of course. But it has the idea, be propitious to me. Deal with my sin. Remove it. Forgive it. Pardon it. Remit it from me, O God. And thus, remove from me as well your wrath. And notice what he doesn't say. It's not fair. 
that you should be angry with me. It's not righteous that you should be angry with me. In every way, he's acknowledging that God should be consuming him in wrath. He takes his whole plea and he rests it upon God's propitious mercy to a sinner. He says, I can't make any other argument. I can't bring any other thing into this equation. My only hope is that you and you alone would forgive and pardon my sin. Well, what are the outcomes of these two ways? Well, the first is in very quick fashion dispensed with. When Christ says in verse 14, I tell you, this man that is the publican went down to his house justified rather than the other. Notice this last he mentions, the other. So the man goes home justified, declared righteous, and what Christ is saying is the Pharisee did not. His petition, his thanksgiving, his morality, his religion did nothing of the sort declare him righteous before God. This word justification that's here presented in the word justified is not about our making ourselves righteous. It's rather the sentence that one is declared righteous. And so what's being said is, from the throne of God in heaven, there is a sentence that is falling upon the Pharisee now. So the Pharisee has marshaled all of his evidence before God and said, with a heart, it seems, of joy, I thank you for my morality. I thank you for my superiority. I thank you for my religiosity. And the sentence from heaven is, you are not righteous. Oh, Pharisee, you have looked wrongly at the standard. You have measured yourself by a false measurement. You have weighed yourself by a false and faulty and deceitful balance. The balance by which you have measured is off. You've weighed yourself by men. But on the other side of the scale are not men. The other side of the scale is the law of God. Think of that, children. Those scales in ancient days that you can still see pictures of that would hang suspended from a point and two equally weighed out uh, parts. One thing would be placed on it and would be measured weighed down. But if the other side were weighed to the same amount, it would be balanced. Well, here's what the Pharisee has done. On one side, he's placed all of his good works and it sinks the scale down with great dignity. And he's shown all of the vanity of other men. And he remains far more weightier than they. But God says, you have committed a most fatal error. Because it's not on this side that other men's works are placed. It's on this side that my holy law, in all of its searching perfection, in all of its demands, outward, verbal, inward, heartfelt, everything is demanded. And when I place my law on that side, you are shown to be weighed in the balance and wanting. You have no righteousness answerable to my holy law. You cannot make that measure out equally. So this man goes home without being declared righteous. We say before pressing on that 
But this is not a Pharisaic temptation alone. It's not like this temptation lived and died with the class of Jews known as the Pharisees. It's something that is true of many today still. There is perhaps a third option of dealing with this. The option of saying, well, I'll never measure up so I lose all hope. But notice here, the temptation is to say, as I weigh myself against others, I stand successful. I stand righteous. But here's what must be remembered. And children remember this well. Adults remember this well. You must not measure yourself against other men. Because that's not the standard by which you'll be judged. You must measure and examine yourself by the relentless and perfect standard of God's law. The Pharisees' fatal mistake was by looking at other men and saying, I'm better than they are. But he failed to look at the law of God and say, I'm worse than it demands. So he goes to his home. Christ doesn't say as much, but we can imagine as he came gleeful and thankful, so in his experience he left gleeful and thankful. And yet ignorant of the fact that upon his head was the sentence of condemnation. Now, notice the other outcome. Here's the publican. No way denying his sin. Always identifying and acknowledging his sin, and yet not acknowledging his sin as if that were what gained him righteousness, but rather casting his hope upon God, be merciful, be propitious to me. What's the outcome that comes to him? It says that he went down to his house justified. Now, what's important is to realize the sentence of justification is not a sentence that passed by a court of men. It's a sentence that comes from heaven. Perhaps the Pharisee walked in a similar path and in his own mind is thinking, well, here's that wicked man. But from the court of heaven, there was a sentence passed, this man, I declare righteous. Is that because his confession fulfilled the law? By no means. It's not as if the gospel becomes a new law by which we attain to righteousness by a new standard or a lesser standard. It's that what takes place is, as we read in Psalm 32, that when we acknowledge our sins, when we confess our sins, God is gracious and faithful to forgive us our sins, as John writes in 1 John. And for whose sake? For Jesus' sake. You see, there's not everything included here, but the essence of justification by grace is acknowledged. Notice as we read earlier in Romans chapter 3, it speaks of, verse 25, that Christ hath been set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His, that is God's righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. What Paul is getting at is this. It's not as if one comes and says, forgive me, and God just sort of snaps his fingers, as we might say, and say, therefore you're forgiven. Rather, there is a work of God that has taken place to secure an answer for the sins that we've committed and to answer for the guilt that we have incurred and to answer for the condemnation that we deserve. And what he's done is he's placed that upon Christ Jesus. It's 
by His blood that we are forgiven. What's being said there is this. It's not that justice goes unanswered. It's not as if the man comes and professes and confesses his sin and God says, okay, I'll just make that uh, vanish. It's that in doing so, the suffering of Christ is applied unto him. Christ makes the payment for the one confessing. And it's because of this just transaction that now the sinner who himself has still uh, uh, unchanged in himself goes home declared righteous. Notice, not made righteous. Not as if now he's transformed into the paragon of holiness, though there's a work begun, doubtlessly, as God is gracious, but rather the cause and the ground of the sentence of righteousness being given to this man is because of the grace of God through the work of Christ. Christ's death, Christ's righteousness is the ground for which a sinner is able to be declared as righteous. Now, brethren, this is a controversy alive and well today. It's not just that we have to look at you know, the Roman Catholic Church, which in its canons of the Council of Trent declare anathema all who say that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that one is justified before God. We merely need to look into our own hearts because our own hearts would give us the same false counsel. Our own hearts would lead us to think that by my prayers, by my sighings, by my works, by my church going, by all of these things that I'm doing, by the change I'm doing in my marriage, by the change that I'm doing in my home, by the change I'm doing in my Bible reading, here's the reason that God is now able to say I'm righteous. But brethren, at best, those are evidences of a gracious change that's taken place. But none of them are the ground by which God says, now I declare you righteous. That comes exclusively because of the propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he suffered on the cross for sinners and that His perfect righteousness is credited to us. It's that which secures our justification. Notice again the man's petition. God be propitious to me a sinner. Apply the propitiation to me. That man goes home justified. And brethren, what Christ presents here is not some time-bound and culturally relative truth. He says, Everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Brethren, here is a warning for our day, perhaps for us in this very room, that we would be watchful against placing the weight of our everlasting hope on anything we have done or haven't done, of in any way approaching God in a similar fashion, relatively better than others in saying, here's the reason I am hopeful, here's the reason I stand secure, because I'm better than that person, because I'm more faithful than that person, because I stand in a better light than others do. Those things may be true. And by the way, they ought to be true, especially of those who are in the visible church. 
But brethren, none of those things are the cause of our being declared righteous before God. We have to be clear in our understanding and ensure, as it were, that our souls are resting upon the true and sure foundation of Christ Jesus and Him crucified, of His righteousness for us, that our rejoicing before God in the, as it were, realm of justification is not, I thank Thee that I am not as other men, but I thank Thee that Christ is my righteousness. I thank Thee that Christ is my sacrifice. I thank Thee that Christ is my Passover. I thank You that Christ is my salvation. Here is the name by which we shall be called the Lord our righteousness. That's our hope and our rejoicing. That's our ground of justification and our sure ground of assurance. That Christ Jesus, His righteousness, His sacrifice is credited to us. It brings nothing of our own doings into the argument with God apart from this. It only owns our sin. Here's what I bring, O God. I bring all of my sin. Here's what I bring. My profanity, my corruption, my crimes of the law of God. And I see, I see so clearly, here's the balance. I am weighed and wanting. Your law is heavy and I cannot move, budge the scale. But here's what I do. I pray, put the righteousness of Christ in my place. And what happens? The scale moves instantly. Boom. Because He fulfilled all the law. He remits all of our sins. And we stand then righteous before God, not for anything us or by us, but solely for the righteousness of Christ. Brethren, here is the need for our assessing of ourselves to be sure that we do not measure by a false standard, but we look squarely at the law of God and all of its outward demands and inward demands and say, what does the law say about me? And as we see and heed its warning, what is it to do? It's not to drive us, as it were, to now try and find a new way by renewed efforts, It's to drive us to the only One who is the Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would cry out to God, be propitious to Me. And oh, brethren, it is, of course, as Christ elsewhere teaches, our demand that we should walk then as He walks, obey Him as He commands. But brethren, beware of this, that your relative sanctification never becomes your ground of justification with God. You will, by God's grace, if a believer, grow in your conformity to the law of God. And you will, by God's grace as a believer, become, as it were, relatively more conformed to God's standard than others. But you will never in this life as a believer so encompass all the demands before God by His law that you can say, I have attained to personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience. Never in this life will your hope of justification rest with anything that you have done. The oldest and most mature and godly saint will always have as his or her hope the perfect, faultless righteousness of Christ and the perfect atoning sacrifice 
of Christ. And brethren, here is the encouragement that when that is your hope, you have the same sentence declared unto you as unto this one. This man went down to his house justified. No one notices the change. No one notices this sentence. But God notices it. Christ notices it. And so we can assure our hearts that as we trust in Christ, God passes sentence, you now, I declare righteous, not for any work of yours, not for any sinlessness as it were in yourself, but solely by my grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me for prayer?